The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been studying in Grudem. Uh, last week we had our church conference. The week before I was otherwise detained. Uh, so it's been three weeks. And, and the interesting thing is we were really right in the middle of this section on definite atonement. So uh, it's a little awkward um, to get back up to speed on that. But um, I think it's worthwhile to finish that and then go on. Um, as time allows to the next study on the resurrection. So um, we're, this is our, our third kind of formal week of, of looking at uh, the doctrine of the atonement. Um, and uh, the atonement is Christ's work uh, by which he earns our salvation, uh, what he did in his life and his death to earn our salvation. Now, we're, we're, what we're focusing on tonight, as we did three weeks ago, is what, what some people call the extent of the atonement. Uh, others have called it kind of the intentionality of the atonement. What was the Lord seeking to do in the atonement, uh, etc.? And there are generally two different schools of thought on that. One is that Christ's uh, death uh, atones for the sins of the entire world. Uh, as Charles Wesley put it in one hymn, his blood atoned for all our race. Uh, but only those that have faith in Christ benefit from this. Um, other, others uh, from the Calvinistic reform view would speak this way. In what sense does, uh, did Christ die for somebody who ends up in hell? In what, in what sense was his blood shed for them if they end up in hell and they're troubled by this? And so therefore they uh, think that Christ's blood shed effectively, effectively atones for sin. And therefore, he must have only died for those that eventually are saved. So there are these two different schools of thought. Now, we've developed uh, some. I hope you all, do you all have the outline here. Uh, I gave about 30 of them back there, and some of you probably have it from a, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, on page five, there's scriptural support um, for the reform view. We talked about uh, there are certain passages used to support it. First, a category of passages that would be used are those that speak of Christ dying specifically for his people. Um, in Matthew 121, <clears throat> he will save his people from their sins. In John uh, 10, there's all this language of Christ's sheep. He knows his sheep and they know him. Uh, verse 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so there, there seems to be a very strong statement that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep he was referring to. And the sheep he was referring to are his sheep. They know him. And they follow him and he gives them eternal life. They're his. He has other sheep that are not of the sheep and he's going to go and bring them as well. And so there are, are those that haven't, haven't trusted in him yet, but he will bring them. He knows who they are and he'll lead them out and there'll be one flock and, and one shepherd. At one point he says, uh, you do not believe in me because you're not my sheep. He's speaking there to some opposers uh, among the uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law who are opposing him. He says, you are not my sheep. And that's why you don't believe in me. So there's a, a very strong way of thinking there that Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, Romans 8:28 through 34, 
uh, some of the strongest verses for assurance of salvation that we get, and they're rooted in God's eternal plan of salvation. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? We always should see in verse 29 the connection between the word purpose and what he says from there. What is his purpose? His purpose is that those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 29 is his purpose. That's what he's doing. That's salvation. That's just another way of saying salvation, that we are con- we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, that's wonderful. And, and, and that's why I say with great confidence that we are not fully saved yet because we're not conformed to him in every way. Um, we uh, still have an indwelling sin nature. Even those that have gone before us that are freed from that uh, do not have uh, the resurrection body yet. But God's ultimate salvation work is that we will be totally conformed to Jesus, that inside and out we would be like him. That is his purpose. Well, he's doing that for a category of people. The, the word those in verse 29, those God foreknew, he predestined. Those people, those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So there's this uh, focus on these individuals that God's working with and he is effectively working his salvation in them. In other places, the scripture calls them uh, the elect, actually even in this section, uh, in verse 33, who will bring any charge against the NIV gives us those whom God has chosen, but other translations give us the elect. It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, it was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, the us there uh, in the context is for uh, those that God is working in, those he foreknew. That's who he's praying for. Um, there's other passages. Turn the page. Um, page 6, another category. Christ references of, to those whom the Father had given him. Uh, again, these uh, passages do not deal more directly with, with the definite atonement, who he died for, but just that there's a group of people he's working with. They're the elect, they're his sheep and he's doing things for them and he's going to be effective with them and he's going to get them right through and he's going to bring them to heaven and what he does for them works. Uh, And that whole way of thinking then logically it seems that for them Christ shed his blood. Uh, And therefore, as I said, Dr. Nicole, my systematic theology professor said for him, the strongest evidence uh, for definite atonement is the unity of purpose in the Trinity. God foreknows some. The Holy Spirit regenerates some. It makes sense then that Christ would die uh, for some as well. Uh, There's a unity of purpose um, in the Trinity. We also talked about Jesus' praying ministry in verse, uh, middle of page 6, John 17, 9 and 20. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those uh, who will believe in me through their message. And so sometimes the reasoning goes in this way. If Jesus won't pray for the world, then why would he die uh, for the world? I mean, if he's not going to take the time to pray. Now, others have said, well, maybe right at this moment in John 17, he wasn't praying for the world, but at other times he prays for the whole world. But I think that doesn't do justice to the significance of John 17, how Jesus is giving us such an incredible incredible example of his praying ministry there and there's such a comprehensiveness to what he's praying for so i think that that um, uh, is not a good way to answer at that particular moment and then ultimately we see in john 17 24 what jesus is praying for what he's laboring for he wants uh, those that the father has given uh, him to be with him where he is and to see his glory he wants to finish the work he doesn't just begin now you think about the parables that jesus told about uh, counting the cost you know what i'm saying and uh, says uh, anyone who uh, wants to build a tower or some kind of building, if they don't sit down and first calculate the cost 
and see if they have enough resources to finish, they'll be embarrassed if they get halfway through and run out of money. From then on, the half-finished project will be a testimony to their poor planning and to their limited resources. Uh, and the same thing, a, a, a king who sees an army coming, he gauges the size of his army and he looks at the size of the horde coming against him. And if he doesn't think he's going to win, he goes out and sues for peace. Uh, it's a matter of counting the cost, of, of ass- assessing the resources. Well, what I want to say is that it, God doesn't, doesn't start something he doesn't finish. Um, and so there's, a, there's an intentionality in what God is doing, what Christ is doing. There's a knowledge to it. He's intending something he wants to achieve, but he's going to. He's going to finish that work he began in us. Uh, thirdly, there's a category of passages that speak of a transaction between the Father and the Son. Uh, Christ died for us. Um, and in, in Romans 5.10, top of page 7, if when we're God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we saved through his life? So there's an actual achievement to the cross. There's a reconciliation that occurs. There's actual forgiveness. The sins are atoned for. The Father is propitiated. He's not angry anymore. An actual achievement has occurred at the cross. And then finally, there are uh, uh, passages which speak of the blessings that Christ gained uh, by his death specifically for his people. There are specific things uh, that Christ came to achieve. Look at the Grudem quote there in the middle of page 7. Further support for the Reformed view is found in the consideration that all the blessings of salvation, including faith, repentance, and all the works of the Holy Spirit in applying redemption, were also secured by Christ's redemptive work specifically for his people. In other words, Jesus shed his blood to pay for it all. We get it all. It's all of grace, right? And uh, we have to think in this way, that the Father, because of our sins, was not disposed to give us anything good. Nothing good of eternal value, etc., because we're under his wrath. But because of the blood of Christ, all the blessings we get, we can rightly say, can be traced to the cross. Do you see that? Uh, basically, if you have saving faith, if you have repentance, as it says in one of the hymns, every grace that brings you nigh, um, all of that was paid for by the blood of Jesus. He bought it and paid for it. He paid for your saving faith. Now, in one of the most poignant parts of John Owen's work on this issue, death of death and the death of Christ, he's talking about the sin of unbelief. And he's asking, is it a sin? Yes or no? And if it is a sin, then he presses on and asks, did Jesus' blood pay for that sin? Yes or no? That's a really poignant question, isn't it? Did he pay for that sin? Yes or no? And if you answer yes, then it is paid for. And if you answer no, then you've got yourself a limited atonement no matter what you argue. You see what I'm saying? Because you're saying that he did not die for all the sins, but only for some of them. And therefore, it it opens up a big question Then, how do we atone for the sin of unbelief? How does it get paid for? Well, the answer would be by believing and repenting. But that's our own work then, kind of disconnected from what Jesus died. We said he didn't die for that sin. That's really up to us that we would, in some sense, atone for it by believing, by repenting. That's kind of our contribution to our salvation. I have a hard way to even say it. I I have a hard time even speaking these kinds of things because I just believe the whole thing is of grace. And if left to us, how can we who are dead in our transgressions and sins actually do anything like that? But Owen is in effect asking, did Jesus die for all of these sins or not? And I believe he died for all kinds of sins, but just not for all the people. Because if he died for all the sins of all people, what would the case be then? Universalism, hell is empty. You understand that? If Jesus' blood effectively atones for all the sins of all the people there are, then there is nobody in hell. 
or else God is unjust. You see what I'm saying? Because here Jesus dies for them and they still end up in hell, at which point Jesus could say, that's unjust. We had an agreement. We had a covenant. But we know from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful in what? Just to forgive. We talked about that phrase. He is faithful and just to forgive. It is justice now for him to forgive now that Jesus has poured out his blood. And so therefore, I think that that the... the uh, arrangement as i put it out that either jesus dies for all the sins of some or he dies for some of the sins of all all of the sins of all is universalism and we must reject it it's not biblical and uh, you know none of the sins of any well there's no point even talking about that we're all going to hell at that point yeah go ahead john Well, I believe it. Uh, personally, I believe it is predetermined, but I don't think it's true that no matter what you do, right. I, I don't mix that into the into the cake mix. All right. What I say is, it is predetermined. It is set, but before the foundation of the world, God had determined. But it is not true that no matter what you do, you'll be saved. I think you must repent and believe in Christ, and therefore I think that it's determined that you will do that. And therefore you say, well, then we're just robots. I say, it isn't that way. I know that I have chosen. I know that we actually do love. Do you, do any of you love Jesus? The Bible says you do, but it just also tells you that the ground of your love is his love for you in that it says we love because he first loved us. And so therefore there is a love we actually have toward God. There is a love we actually have toward Christ. I think that, you know, I, I have, I think a theological ground to extend that word love than to say choose as well. We choose Christ, but we choose because he first cho- chose us. There's a ground of our choosing. Yes, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, in John's gospel, it says that very plainly. You did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, when Jesus says you did not choose me, it doesn't mean that you made no choice toward me. But I think what it means is you didn't ultimately choose me. I think what we're saying there is that any choosing you did to follow. And they did. Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew and sorry, uh, I'm sorry, uh, wrong quartet. Uh, James and John and Peter and Andrew, the four fishermen, they all chose to leave their nets. They did. But all I'm saying is Jesus came to them first and said, follow me. He chose them first. So, Stephen, that's a very, very good uh, point. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Richard. To sin a failure to repent. Right. Someone who is not elect will not repent. They won't. That mm-hmm. sin was not atoned for them in any way. None of their sins are atoned for. None of them are. The person who is elect mm-hmm. will not commit that sin. Well, they might for a while. I did, you know. Sooner or later, they're going to repent and believe. Yeah, and and I, to me, that's part part of it. it basically, they uh, the grace of God is effective, and uh, He just wins. He's just so persuasive and and so enticing. And and frankly, I think it has to do with taking away a soul blindness. We have a blindness in our soul, and we just can't see how spectacularly glorious and wonderful Jesus is until He heals that blindness, and we's like, oh, He's wonderful, He's incredible, and we want Him, we see Him. So I think he's just effective at healing is what it is. The thing that's hard for us to grasp is that he doesn't heal everybody. And we think, well, why not? Well, Romans 9 through 11 tries as best we can understand it to answer that question. For his own glory, he chooses not to. 
So that's a very good, uh, good point, Richard, that you're bringing up. Uh, basically, I do think to some degree all of us reject Christ. All of us disbelieve in him. I look at Saul of Tarsus. How long was he breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples? How long did I resist the gospel? How long did any of you? The thing is, he just doesn't leave us there. Isn't that wonderful? And he, he works effectively um, to save us and bring us to repentance. So the question you have to ask, whatever you come up with on this, is did Jesus uh, atone for all the sins of some, some the sins of all, or some other combination? And if he atones for all of the sins of some, then and you believe that, you end up having a label on you where you, whether you like it or not, people will call you Reformed or Calvinistic or whatever. I don't bother with those labels, all right? Because they come with so much baggage and I don't see the advantage to me. So why should I wear it? But uh, at any rate, I will say, I believe that Christ died for all of the sins of some people. If on the other hand, you say he died for some of the sins of all people, then you're left with a big gap. And I want to know what you're going to use to fill it. Um, because if there's some sin his blood doesn't atone for, then what are you going to use to take care of that? It ends up being a major problem. Let's keep going. I want to. I, I, I felt a sense of imbalance in the presentation last time because we ran out of time. It wasn't intentional on my part, but we ran out of time in that I didn't give the verses that argue against this view, and I want to talk about them. Uh, we just ran out of time. I don't lack the desire to go through them. And I do want to say ahead of time that whatever we end up discussing or coming up with on this, there's a lot of godly people on both sides of this discussion. I think it's important that we know that there's certain ways we carry on these conversations and discussions and certain ways we shouldn't. I think it's very important, though, that we do carry on the conversations. It bothers me when people, out of a fear of offending or they want to be bothered or don't want to get in a conflict, that we don't have discussions with each other. We need to challenge each other's thinking. But there's a way to do it that's loving, a way that embraces the other person as a brother or sister in Christ and says, I think what you have to say is important. Uh, not one of us has all of our theology together. And so therefore, God is always doing something wonderful when people come together to discuss the scripture. I always end up learning. And uh, I think humility is of the essence there so that we can keep learning and keep growing. But let's keep going, though, because I really do want to discuss those verses that seem to argue against it. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah, page 7, page 8. Points of clarification, page, uh, page 10, uh, 8. Oh, I missed it. How do I not end up with a whole set? Did you, do your sets all skip? Oh, we're devastated here. Does anybody have an older set that doesn't? Thanks, Ron. Sorry about that. What's that? That's terrible, isn't it? Hey, I'm telling you what. I put the bundle of papers in and I cranked it out. That's good. That's good. I like it. See, you left them out. Well, I didn't always leave them out. Here they are. That is terrible. All right. That's so conspicuous, though, isn't it? You know, going from 7 to 10. Ooh, I got left out. Um, at any rate. Page 8, thank you. All right, um, we're talking about passages used to support the non-reform view. And the first uh, major, most significant category of this, and this is why, for me, I do not consider this to be a showstopper if somebody disagrees with me on this, because there are passages that seem to teach exactly the opposite. Uh, they really do. If you look, for example, at uh, the use of the word world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his uh, one and only son or only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, some could say, what could be clearer? Clearly, he loves the world. Clearly, he's got a saving stance toward the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world. What else? What could be clearer than that? Um, other verses would be John 6.51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Um, this is this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So again, similar kind of teaching. And, 
Well, um, that's an interesting question. We'll get to what I think the world means in John 3.16 in a minute. But I, I want you to note that John uses the word world in uh, different, interesting ways. For example, in John's gospel, we already read that it says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you gave me out of the world, for they are yours. So here you got John 3.16 in which God's loving the world, but then John 17 where Jesus won't pray for the world. So already you've got an interesting thing. And then over in 1 John 2, you're commanded not to love the world or anything in the world. And so you're like, well, my head is spinning. Well, no, don't let it spin. Just say, clearly the word world has a variety of meanings and we need to be intelligent to figure out what they mean. I think in John 3.16, the word world means just the human race generally in that God has a positive stance or a saving stance generally toward the world. Some uh, An analogy that Dr. Nicole used that I, I remember, I don't know if it'll be helpful to you, um, but the analogy is of a, the Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, I, I don't know that much about the history of the Rhodes Scholars and, and all that, but apparently it was a pocket of money set up by somebody in England who loved the United States. And he just for some reason loved America and uh, he wanted to set up this scholarship so that uh, uh, people who met certain criteria could come to uh, Cambridge or Oxford. Or is it Oxford? I don't know. One of the major universities in England and study. And so the Rhodes Scholarship was money that was set up. And so really in effect, this man, I don't know if his name is Rhodes or whatever, uh, Huh? Cecil Rhodes. Huh? Is that right? Rhodesia. Well, you learn something new every day. That's interesting. Rhodesia. Rhodes. English? Okay. English colonizer guy. So, English colonizer guy. You heard it here first. All right. Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes. Anyway, the analogy could be this, that uh, Mr. Rhodes so loved the United States of America that he set up a scholarship that whoever meets the criteria of the scholarship could come to England and study, uh, you know, and that's that's why there's a general stance of favorable disposition to the United States, but that doesn't mean that every single citizen in the United States, in every generation, will benefit from that stance that he has toward uh, the United States. That's an analogy. If it helps you, it helps you. If not, I'll say this: that God's love for the world in John 3:16, if it doesn't end up in universalism, has to be understood carefully. Apparently, He can love in, in a certain way. And yet, that way doesn't include saving people from their sins. So, uh, in any case, John 3.16 is a challenge. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And again, these verses, the problem with them is that they say too much in many cases. They, they, they could lead to universalism if you're going to take that universal uh, approach. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Does that mean that nobody's sins is counted against them? Well, evidently not, because there's a judgment day and many people are, are told, depart from me, you who are cursed, etc. So it can't be that. 1 John 2, 2 also uh, seems to say this very directly and, and even more strongly. I would say 1 John 2, 2 would be one of the strongest verses against definite atonement, um, stronger than 1 John 2, 6 and some of the others that God desires all men to be saved, etc. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So again, you think, well, that's directly in the face of this teaching of definite atonement. I, mean, I would think that that would settle the case, that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The problem comes in the word propitiation. It's an exceptionally strong word. It means the one who effectively removes the wrath of God for sin by the payment of a sacrifice. And the problem that you have with that is if the wrath of God has been effectively propitiated, then why do those people end up in hell? And if they end up in hell, then in what sense has the wrath been propitiated? 
That's the question. So the word propitiation, a very strong word. How then would someone understand 1 John 2, 2? Well, I think it, it, it comes down to what John might mean by our and the world. Okay? It could be that our is the Jews and the world are the non-Jews, as some people say. In other words, he hasn't just come for Jews, but he has come also for Gentiles. Other people say it could be ours is those who have already received uh, Christ and then those who haven't really to the ends of the earth. So you've got people all over the world and basically there, there aren't many atoning sacrifices. There's just one for everyone who's going to get saved in the world. Uh, there's not many. There's only just that one. Uh, those are different ways of, of uh, interpreting that. You have the same issue with First John, two, uh, sorry, First Timothy two six. It says that Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all men. Uh, the testimony given in its uh, proper time. Uh, the word ransom here is a prefix anti, uh, which uh, intens- intensifies the substitutionary sense. The price is pl- paid. In other words, a price paid instead of or in the place of someone else. Again, you get that double payment problem. Okay, if the price has been paid in the place of someone else, how then can the price be again demanded? It seems unjust. So if the, if the ransom price has been paid, it's paid. And uh, there you have the issue. So then what does all men mean? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, he's urging that prayers be offered for kings and governors and those in authority. Um, and why is that? Because believe it or not, some of them actually might end up being elect and might actually end up in heaven. Though you don't think so, they're the very ones who are making your lives miserable, the ones who are dispatching their soldiers to ruin your meetings in the middle of the night. You might give up on them as a category. Don't do it. Because there are people from all of these categories, high and low born, rich and poor, kings and governors, slaves. Now, we already know from 1 Corinthians, there's going to be an awful lot more low born and poor people and, and those that are not to nullify the things that are. Uh, God just loves to say poor people and, and people that nobody cares about. He loves to do that. But we shouldn't think there will be no well-educated people in heaven. We shouldn't think there will be no rich people in heaven. We shouldn't think there will be no kings or governors in heaven. God sometimes does that. could be that Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of a megalomaniac uh, you know, dictator who comes to his senses and eventually comes to faith. I don't know. But uh, don't write anybody off. Pray for everybody. Pray for Nero that he'd come to faith. Pray for Saddam Hussein that he'd come to faith. Maybe even now is a good time to be praying for Saddam as he goes through his trial. Who knows? Pray for Osama bin Laden. Pray for anybody. Don't give up on anybody because we don't know who the elect are. That is not given to us to know. And so don't give up on anybody, but pray for all kinds of people because um, Christ is the ransom for all kinds of folks. I think that's what 1 John or 1 Timothy 2.6 is saying. Um, Hebrews 2.9 uh, says that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, etc. So these are passages that speak of Christ in some sense dying for the whole world. Any comments or questions about this category of verses that seems to teach universal atonement? Yeah, go ahead, Annie. Five twenty one, yeah. Yeah. 
So, all right, you get somebody uh, within, the, within the scheme that some present that are not elect, they commit sins, and they don't get punished. Is that what you're talking about? Whole bunch of sin, lots of sin, right? Tons of sin, river of sin, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You mean for a child of God, for a Christian? By the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. See, the thing is, all right, first of all, there seems to be a problem with God's justice in that wicked people do not get judged immediately. But God has already told us that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He takes a long time to bring judgment. The sin of the Amorites hadn't reached its full measure. That was 400 years he waited for all these Canaanites to do the, their wicked things. And that was lots of generations of people that came and went and offered their babies up and, and did all kinds of nasty things, and God never judged them. But the thing is, the story isn't over yet. And so when, when all of human history is over, God will show himself just concerning sin in two ways. The cross and hell, those two ways display God's justice meticulously. And so therefore, every single sin that's ever been committed either gets covered by the blood of Christ at the cross or it gets judged eternally in the lake of fire. And in this way, God displays his justice. For us, I think it's an obvious case which we would desire. All right? I mean, it should be obvious that we would rather have it paid for by he who knew no sin to be sin for us and take the wrath of God and propitiate God so that we don't have to bear the wrath of God. But God will show himself just, just in the end. He will in every case show himself just. He keeps a record of everything that we do. Uh, we have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that we have spoken. And so it's a meticulous and careful judgment that God will give on judgment day and he will prove himself just. And therefore it says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps whatever he sows. So if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh it says, you will reap destruction. So what I get out of that is that every single sin gets dealt with. Just not yet. Just not yet. And so God is patient and in his forbearance it seems that he's unjust. And some have questioned his justice. They look at the prosperity of the wicked. They look at how well wicked people do. And they wonder, where is God in all of this? Here I am suffering with a disease or I have no money to pay for groceries. And here are these wicked drug dealers or whatever and they're doing so well and thriving. The story isn't over yet. That's Psalm 73. Then I went to the temple and I discerned what their final end would be. Okay? They will be judged. So my understanding is that every sin gets... God's going to clean up the universe. He's going to deal with every sin. And it's either going to be uh, dealt with uh, by eternal judgment in hell or the cross. Both of them infinite punishments, if you look at it. It's a good question. Any other questions about this? I mean, that terminology, too. Christ has not died for all the sins, but the sin of unbelief, and the sin of unbelief is paid for in hell. Yeah, I would never want to say that anything's paid for in hell. Um, Displayed. Yeah, he displays his justice there. Yeah. Yeah, um, but the problem we have there is that, that the, the, the Scripture doesn't seem to give that terminology. If you look at Judgment Day, people are sent to hell for things they did, not simply because they didn't believe in the gospel. You know, there are people who have never heard the gospel, and I believe they will not suffer for rejecting the gospel of Christ. Rather, they'll suffer for violating the kind of internal law of God written in their hearts 
their conscience is bearing witness and now accusing, now even defending them. So their idolatry and their murders and their lust and their adulteries and their, all of their things that they did, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus, Romans 1 makes it clear that they are culpable. They are without excuse, it says in Romans 1. And for those things, they will be judged. What's really scary for us is that the more you know, the greater is your judgment, right? So if you hear the gospel and reject, you're in a much greater situation of wrath than somebody who never heard the name of Christ. So the more we know and reject, the worse it is. That's why I think that Judas is the worst sinner in history because here he sees the incarnate God. He gets all of this in this incredible teaching, all of the explanations of the parables. He gets the gospel preached to him by the Son of God himself. He gets to see all of the miracles that, and, and still he rejects. He's the closest person ever to Jesus who didn't believe in him and didn't trust. And so therefore, what a horrible and terrible judgment for him. So the way I believe it is that those who have never heard in Christ, they are condemned, uh, Romans 1, for the sins they commit, violating the natural order which is set up in their hearts and their consciences where they know they've done wrong. But the more you know, the greater is your judgment unless you come to Christ. Therefore, it's good for us to come to Christ and to believe and to trust. Any other questions about this first category of verses that seems to teach that Christ died for the sins of the whole world? Yeah, John. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing for us to understand, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand it. It is really the nub of the debate between Luther and Erasmus on free will and all that. Very, very difficult for us to understand this. But I just, what I want to say is I don't think that there's anything that God tells us to go away and do all by ourselves and bring back to him. All right? In other words, the choosing is yours. The repentance is yours. I have nothing to do with that. That just isn't biblical. You know, you find out that God grants people repentance. We find out that he gives faith, that faith is a gift of God's grace. These are things he gives. And so ironically, he gives them and then commands that we use them. You know, and so he gives repentance and he says, repent. He gives faith and he says, believe. Um, these are things that, and it's hard for us. You say, well, you know, how does that fit? But let me show you one verse that I, I came across. Very, very interesting. And this is Ezekiel chapter 2. And say, so what in the world does that have to do with eternal predestination? Maybe nothing. But anyway, I'll show it to you. So one of those quiet time verses you read it and say, huh, that's interesting. I look at Ezekiel 2, uh, 1 and 2. Um, I'm just tired of hearing myself talk. Somebody want to read Ezekiel 2, 1 and 2? Anybody in the mood? Ezekiel 2, 1 and 2. Is anybody even there? I heard pages flip. All right, go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead. That's interesting. In, in verse 1, we get a command from the Father or to, from God to Ezekiel. And what's the command, Stephen, that he gives him? Stand on your feet. But then what happens in, in verse 2? The Spirit enters and he stands him on his feet. Well, then what's the purpose of the verse 1? Well, look, if you can figure out Ezekiel 2, 1 and 2, come and tell me, okay? All right. But, you know, clearly there's a command given in verse 1, stand up on your feet. And then verse 2, the Spirit comes and stands him up on his feet. And I actually think that's what's, what we're going to find out was the case for all of us. 
We're told, believe the gospel, and the Spirit comes and enables us to believe the gospel. We're told, repent, and the Spirit enables us to repent. And in the end, he's going to get all the glory. He's going to get all the glory. And are we robots? That's just such a simple way of looking at this. No, we're not robots. We really do stand up on our feet. We really do repent. We do really do follow. But he gets all the glory for it, all of it. We don't even realize how much glory he deserves for what he's done. Yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking, I think it's in Isaiah 26 somewhere where it talks about uh, all we've accomplished, he's done for us. Yeah. All that he's accomplished, we have done. He, yeah, he has done for us. Isaiah teaches that. Uh, it says in Hebrews 13, in that great benediction, 20 and 21, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, it says, may he work in us what is pleasing to him. That's amazing prayer. Just God, work in me what, what pleases you. I actually prayed that this morning. I was driving and I said, Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased with me today. And I thought, that's not a good prayer. Let me pray better. <laughs> um, I pray that you'd work in me what is pleasing to you. The first is, Lord, come around to where I am and just be happy with whatever it is I throw your way, you know. <laughs> and, and you know, it's like, no, how about this? Why don't you come to where I'm at, okay? And then, Lord, please work in me then what your standards are for me. I, you're not moving. I need to move to you. I need to conform to you. I think that's what's going on here. All right. Is it possible in the end that in some sense Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? Well, that seems to be what those verses teach. I just think that if you accept that, you're going to bump into some problems in other places. And so, therefore, definite atonement seems to answer these better, even though that seems to be what it teaches. If in the end you say, look, I'm going to just take it what it says for what, the way it's written in a simple way and just say that Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world, I'll love you and embrace you and we'll keep talking. All right, that's all. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, it does. It takes a lot of time, but it repays your work. Yeah. One thing about one thing about Owen is, you know, unlike me and my like fake little handout here that skips from seven to ten, he doesn't do any of that. Okay, <laughs> um, what what he does is he deals, and this was what was so satisfying and fr- probably more satisfying than any book I have ever read theologically, is as I was reading, I was saying, yeah, but, and then yeah, but's dealt with for the next seven pages, and as I'm reading in the seven pages, like, well, yeah, okay, but. And then, yeah, okay, but is dealt with, dealt with the next four pages. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't leave anything not addressed. Now, you may not be satisfied with his addressing, but one thing is he's honest. And he's not trying to throw up straw men. He's really trying to deal with the verses uh, as they are and understand them. Nothing's, nothing's left. And, and J.I. Packer is right when he's saying, saying that basically no one has thought of or ever will thought of, think of, arguments for or against definite atonement that Owen hasn't dealt with exhaustively. You know, I mean, you, he's thought of th- stuff that is relevant you haven't even thought of, and he's dealt with it for, at length. So read it if you can. Um, it is in English. I know that might <laughs> might be hard to believe, but it is there, and you can try it. All right, second category of passages which appear to speak of Christ for dying for people, dying for people who will not be saved. You can see how that's relevant. If Jesus died for them and they don't end up saved, then that's a different way of looking at the atonement. And there are some verses like that. For example, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, talk about uh, destroying a brother for whom Christ died. The question I want to ask, though, is what is the nature of the destruction? It may not be eternal destruction there, but you're destroying his witness or you're harming him in some way. It doesn't mean necessarily you're sending him to hell. Okay, and so it says in Romans 14:15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. It could be, I mean, I'm just saying, it wouldn't be wrong for me to tell you that sin continues to have a destructive effect in my life. 
And, and if I use that kind of language, would you say that I believe I'm going to hell thereby? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that sin is destructive. And so I don't think it's necessarily we should take Romans 14, 15 and say that, that this person's going to hell, the one for whom Christ died. And I think similarly in 1 Corinthians 8, for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. It's the same thing. You know, he is harmed severely is the way I would put it, not sent to hell. Um, so the thing that would trouble me is if we would say, okay, this is definitely, if he's called a brother, um, the language is, so this weak brother, and then it adds, for whom Christ died, is sent to hell. It doesn't say that. It says he is destroyed uh, because of your knowledge. And what is the knowledge? That I can eat anything. You know, there's idols aren't anything in the world. It's just meat. Well, that's all true, Paul says, but be careful of your context. Your brother is a little bit weak, and you may harm him severely by leading him to think things he's not ready to think. So please be careful how you handle the weak faith of a brother. I think that's what he's getting at. Second Peter 2 one's a little more troublesome. Uh, it says there are also false prophets among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, uh, bringing swift destruction on themselves. I, I'll tell you it's a troubling verse for me, and I don't know that I can give you a satisfying answer. Uh, one answer, this, and it's been a while since I read Owen, so really what I'd urge you to do is read Owen on 2 Peter 2, one and see what he says. Um, one, there are a couple of interesting things about this. First, the word Lord is an unusual word. It's despotes, from which we get the word despot. It's not a word we usually use of the Lord. Um, that doesn't mean it's not speaking of Christ. I'm just saying that it's an interesting word. Uh, secondly, uh, there's no way we can say these people don't end up in hell. Uh, it's actually the most hell-filled chapter you'll find anywhere short of the book of Revelation. Um, you know, if you read 2 Peter 2, 2, it'll just make the hairs on your neck stand up. Basically, it's the strongest possible language uh, concerning it because these folks are false teachers who are, are teaching false doctrines. So, the, you know, the destruction is there. Then the question is, what does it mean that he bought them? He bought them. Uh, and if it means uh, that he paid the price for their sins, I have a problem. And so should you, frankly. In what sense did he buy them then? How, how, was, how were they his? How did he pay for them? How were their sins atoned for? Because in my sense, my understanding is being bought with a price means my sins have been paid for. And so therefore, I, I think no matter what you think about this issue, you've got a problem with Second Peter 2.1. Um, but what I would say is it could be that they were claiming that Christ bought them out of sin. And yet, as you read Second Peter 2, the whole context, they are preaching a gospel of license. They're saying that the grace of God can cover anything. Take a minute and look, 2 Peter 2, I don't take my word for it. But in 2 Peter 2, they are preaching that the grace of God frees you from any concern of the law. And so therefore, you can do whatever you want, you're going to go to heaven. All right? So 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2, um, Yeah, uh, let me just read sections of it. Um, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways. Shameful ways. What, what shameful ways? We'll get to that in a minute, but they're shameful ways. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. Well, clearly we're talking about not an ascetic lifestyle here, but a, a wicked and immoral lifestyle covered by the grace of Christ. You see? 
They're going to bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been uh, sleeping. And then he goes through, you know, angels that sinned and, and all the Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about the uh, um, lot being tormented by the filthy lives of lawless men around him, etc. And uh, verse uh, uh, 10, it says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Again, we're dealing with license. Do you see it? We're dealing with people who are just giving into the flesh and living however they want. And then... Um, continuing, bold and arrogant, these false teachers, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Um, so they, they talk about that. Uh, and then verse 13, it says, they'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Now listen, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. So they're like having orgies in the middle of the day. All right? They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved the wages of wickedness. Verse 17, these men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That's terrible. For they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, verse 19, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And here's the thing. Look at verse 20. I think verse 20 is the key to understanding denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverb is true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Now, there are two different opposite errors in the Christian life concerning grace. One is legalism, the other license. Both of them destructive. In the book of Galatians, you're really dealing with legalism there. Are you dealing with legalism here? I think absolutely not. Here you're dealing with wretched, filthy, kind of, well, just people who are giving into the flesh and yet saying that Christ has covered their sins. They're turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. So what I want to say is, they say that Christ has bought them. I want to ask, bought from what? Didn't Jesus come to save us from sin? Didn't he come to save us not just from condemnation, but from sin itself? And look how you're living. So they claim that Christ has bought them, but he really hasn't. They've never been freed from sin. They continue to love it and embrace it. That's the best I can make out of that passage. Like I said, though, no matter what you do with it, you still have a problem because if he bought them and they end up in hell, that's a problem for all of us. Any questions about Second Peter 2? Okay, um, Hebrews 10:29. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an holy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is included in the list because here's the blood that sanctifies him and he tramples it underfoot. Well, again, you're working on the phrase sanctified. In what sense 
is he sanctified? Now, I think there's different ways to be sanctified. I think the problem in the book of Hebrews, and any of you that heard me preach to the book of Hebrews on Sunday evening, is you've got Jewish professors of faith in Christ, those who have claimed to be Christians. They're, they've set themselves apart and are involved in the Christian community. They're doing Christian things. They're attending the worship services and all that. But then they're sliding back into Old Testament worship because they're under persecution. You see what I'm saying? And so in one sense, they were set apart by the new covenant, but they really weren't saved. And they're proving that by trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus, saying, oh, I reject him. I repudiate him. I'm back now where I belong. I'm back in synagogue worship as I always should have been. Well, in what sense really were they converted? In what sense were they saved? It's a very severe warning, a warning against sliding and apostasy. And by the way, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach on, in Romans 11 on the, on the function and purpose of warnings in the Christian life. Because in, in Romans 11, it talks about if God didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either. And strip you off. And it's like, well, how does that line up with once saved, always saved? We'll talk about that. But there's a place for warnings in the Christian life. And I think Hebrews 10, 29 is a warning. All right. Those are the verses that people bring up against the idea of death and atonement. Any questions or comments about those verses? Yeah. Sure. He's patient toward us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yeah. Yeah, there's different ways to understand that. Some people zero in on the us, all right? He is patient toward us, and that's what I do. I zero in on who's the us in the verse. Others say that it might be just a general disposition of the Lord, not generally wanting anyone to perish. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He desires people to repent, but he doesn't effectively bring it about. There's two different ways that Reformed people have looked at that verse. I prefer to look on it as the us, and this is actually the way I look at all of human history. Basically, God is waiting for all the elect to come to faith in Christ. And when they have come, then the end will come, and not before. And so God, basically, you look at 2 Peter 3, it's talking about the second coming of Christ, right? It's all about the second coming. And they're saying, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget about the days of Noah and how you know it came, and then boom, it came, and they weren't ready for it. And so it will be concerning the second coming of Christ. And so the question is, then when is he going to come? Well, he's patient toward us, not wanting any of us to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that's what he's actually waiting for, is for the us to come to repentance. And he will not return until all the us have come to repentance. That's the way that some people understand that verse. Other people say it teaches that God wants everyone to be saved. Those are people that focus on free will and they tend to be called Arminians. And they say, God does desire everybody to be saved. He just chooses not to bring it about effectively. He's leaving it to our free will to make that decision. And he's grieved when people don't. It's, that's the presentation that's made on the free will side. They say that they're not saying that God couldn't make people convert. They're not saying that. They're just saying he chooses not to violate our free will. And he leaves it to us to make that decision. And we ultimately determine and decide whether we will believe or not. But uh, God has done everything he will do. He has provided Christ. He has provided the church. He's poured out the spirit. He's given us commands. He's done what he will do. The rest is up to us. We need to repent. We need to believe. My question is, if that's true, then what do you pray for? What are you praying for? When you're praying for a lost person to be saved, what more are you asking him to do than he has already done? You see what I'm saying? Wouldn't he, in effect, say, I've done what I'm going to do? <laughs> but I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. They don't have that E on their forehead. I've, I've been looking. I've never seen it. I, I just don't know who they are. You know, I, I don't know who the elect are. All I know is I know who the elect are positively by how they live. When they turn away from idolatry, 
when they, when they love Jesus, when they embrace the gospel, when the gospel comes with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, I think they're elect. And, uh, you know, whether I think they are elect or not doesn't change whether they are or not. You know that. I'm not their judge. So they don't gain anything by me deciding that they're elect. But I can do that. And I accept all of my brothers and sisters in Christ here at this church who have talked to me. And we've, you know, I accept you as elect. <laughs> no, I just, I'm, I'm not your judge and you're not mine. I mean, you, you discern that I'm elect or you never would have called me to be uh, your pastor. You don't want an unelect pastor. You really don't. I mean, that's a bad, <laughs> bad, bad news. So you discerned that I was in that category, all right? We can effectively do that for each other. But when you're talking, I'll say this. You absolutely, I believe this with all my heart, you absolutely don't know who's reprobate. That you do not know. Because even at the very end of their life, they might still repent. I mean, even at the, the final breath, they might still come to faith in Christ. That's what the, the dying thief, thief has given to everybody, is hope that right even to the very, very end, they could still come. So we never have any, any uh, opportunity to say, well, I know that Saddam Hussein's reprobate. Look at all the wickedness he's done. You can't say that. God desires all kinds of people to be saved. And so keep praying, keep hoping. We should hope that, that there's somebody ministering the gospel to him, even if he throws him out every day. You know, my feeling is we, we have a hopefulness there that's so energetic. Do you see it? it we, we always have hopes. We can go to the Persian Gulf states. We can go to China. We can go to India because we have such a buoyant hope that God's going to get his elect. We don't know who the reprobate are and we will not until judgment day. Then it will become clear who the sheep and the goats are. But right now, didn't Jesus tell a parable that we can't tell the difference, the wheat and the tares? He said, you're going to root up, you're going to root up wheat. It sure looks like tares. It looks like weeds. It looks an awful lot like weeds, doesn't it? For a long time, Saul of Tarsus looked very weedy. You know what I'm saying? He's looking extremely weedy, but he wasn't weed. In the end, he was wheat to the glory of God. So all I'm saying is we cannot know the reprobate. I think we can effectively and provisionally know the elect. And we just accept that about each other, that you believe in Jesus, we accept each other. We leave the rest of that to God. But what I do is I want to get on my knees and I say, Lord, I pray that you would do those effective, powerful things you do to get people saved. Do them. Because I think there's more that he does that actually brings somebody to salvation. I think he actually does that. He takes out the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. He actually does that. And so I can get on my knees and say, God, that thing you do, do it. Do it in this case. And you would get the glory and then we leave it to God to decide. Now, you may ask, why wouldn't he do that? That's the ultimate question of Romans 9 through 11. We leave it to him to decide whether he'll do it or not. Okay. Any other questions about these verses? About this? Anything else? This is a deep topic. I want to kind of finish up with some points of agreement and then we'll be done. Um, first of all, both sides agree that not all will be saved. Uh, everybody, I mean, evangelicals at least. Secondly, a free offer of the gospel can rightly be made to every person ever born. Both sides agree about that. We should freely make the offer to anybody ever born. Thirdly, it is completely true that whoever will may come to Christ for salvation and that no one who comes to him will be turned away. That is true. Both sides agree. And both sides agree that Christ's death in itself is sufficient for the atonement of the sins of every sinner that has ever lived or ever will live. There was nothing more needed than Christ's death, nothing lacking in Christ's death. We all agree about that. There's nothing, nothing more that needed to be done. What we disagree about is, did Christ actually pay the penalty only for the sins of those who would believe in him, or did he actually pay the penalty for the sins of every person who ever lived? Secondly, in what sense did Christ die for the sins of a person who was condemned to hell? Third, people who hold to general redemption argue that people suffer in hell not for all their sins, in that Christ died for those sins, but that they're suffering 
just for having rejected Christ. So they focus on they rejected Christ, and that's why they're there. Uh, fourth, there's two problems with that theory. First, what about those who never heard of Christ? That's a big issue. And uh, how did they reject Christ? And secondly, the teaching of Scripture is that people suffer in hell for sins they committed in this life, not just for rejecting Christ. Fifth, page 10, did Christ actually win the salvation or redemption for anyone, or did he merely win the possibility of salvation? Did he just make it possible, frankly, for us to save ourselves? Number six, a problem for those who hold the definite atonement. And this is a problem for me. I'm flipping back and now I'm pointing the finger of accusation at my own theories and understanding. Okay? If Christ actually paid for my sins when he died, then was I ever under the wrath of God? Was I ever by nature an object of wrath? I mean, before I was a Christian, was I by nature an object of wrath? That's a problem because Ephesians says I was. It says by nature we were objects of wrath. So how does that work? How can God both be propitiated and wrathful at the same time? Before I came to Christ, I mean. And I think that may have something to do with the way that God deals with time. Remember how it says in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew he called, past tense, and those he called he justified, past tense, and those he justified he glorified, past tense. I think it's similar to Jesus saying, Father, in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Well, of course, there was something big left out at that point. Do you know what it was? What was the big thing that was left out when Jesus prayed in John 17? I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. He hadn't died yet. <laughs> okay? But in Jesus' mind, it's as good as done. He's going to die. It just hasn't happened yet. But to me, this is a problem that I have with my own view. Was I ever under the wrath of God if Jesus had effectively paid for my sins? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're focusing on the on the um, tense, I think that Jesus chooses when he chooses. In other words, that he chose for me back then. Uh, Jesus is speaking generally there in Matthew uh, 11 about how he nobody can know Jesus or know the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal him. And when he does, he effectively does. It. I think he does it through the Holy Spirit. So I think those verses are very very strong for the sovereignty of God. You can't know the Father, unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to you. Um, and, and what's amazing to me, Tim, about that section is that it talks about how you can't know him and only if Jesus chooses to reveal. But then the very next thing, remember what he does? What's the very next thing he does in verse 28? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. All you who are weary and burdened. Whosoever will. So it's like, well, Jesus, boy, are you doctrinally confused. You just get done giving us these incredible sovereignty verses, and then you just give a general invitation to everybody? I don't think he's doctrinally confused at all. That's what we're called to do. Understand the sovereignty of God and then make a general invitation. And then we know the ones that came, the Son chose to reveal him or chooses to reveal him. It's a good question. Okay, we could talk about this for a while. There's a lot more in these, uh, this handout than I've read tonight. Please take the time and read it. J.I. Packer's introdu Introduction to the Death of Death and Death of Christ. I've given you a long quote from it. Read it. It's really good stuff. Uh, I'm not going to go to this um, next week, God willing. I'll probably go on to resurrection. But if you have any other questions, we can talk about it. I actually have to cut out immediately. I have a member inter interview as soon as we're done here. But I know you think I'm, I'm ducking you. I'm shirking you. <laughs> Tough questions I want to ask you. But I'll be around, God willing. So let's ask. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, we uh, thank you for the time we've had tonight to study some very deep things and some good things. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the depths of your atoning work for us, Lord Jesus. I just thank you for the fact that our sins have been paid for thoroughly and completely by the blood of Christ. And there's nothing lacking, nothing missing. We're grateful for that. I thank you that you are also, as Tim pointed out in Matthew 11, uh, Lord Jesus, that you are sovereign to reveal the Father and that when you reveal the Father, he is revealed. And we just thank you for that, just like happened in Matthew 16 when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, Jesus, you said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And uh, I thank you for that. Lord, you are the one who reveals yourself to us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to keep thinking and keep learning. I pray that we'd also be effective to keep evangelizing too. I pray that this theology would give us a buoyant optimism and energy in evangelism to be confident that you'll not waste our efforts, but you're going to lead us to elect people whom you have prepared for years to receive the the gospel. And that having that preparation done by others who have paid the price and have paid the price for their rebellion um, against you, now we come and perhaps at the last minute we're able to lead them into faith in Christ. While others have done the hard work, we can enter into their labor and bring them to faith. Oh Lord, I pray that would happen. And if for us, our lot is to do the hard labor and someone 10 years from now will lead them to Christ, we're happy to do anything we can in the ministry of reconciliation. God, give us a work to do. I pray that more people would be converted as a result of our witness. I pray that there'd be more baptisms. I pray there'd be more new Christians to disciple. I pray that we would become spiritual parents, then grandparents, then great-grandparents as we disciple generations of people. Father, do a great work of evangelism in this church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.